This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with Andrea Dunlop about Munchausen by proxy, lies, kernels of truth, blame, grief, and support. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Andrea Dunlop. How are you? I'm great, Brandon. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you for being here, everyone. Andrea Dunlop here is an author. You are the author of three Books and the three books are uh, Losing the Light, She Regrets Nothing, and We Came Here to Forget All from Atria and Simon and Schuster. Your books have been featured in Town and Country, Bustle, InStyle, Us Weekly, Vanity Fair, People Magazine, and more. But you're here today to talk about a podcast that you were the host of. Uh, a, a ridiculous amount of research has uh, been put into the show and in interviews, and it is called Nobody Should Believe Me. I have binged this podcast. It was an excellent podcast, and it's about Munchausen by proxy, and you talk to family members, um, kill children of, of the people who were the ones that were the victims of this abuse, uh, detectives, doctors. It is a really thorough uh, podcast, this first eight episodes that everyone should binge. Uh, everyone who listens to our show, um, it's just something, even though this is not exactly what we're dealing with on our show, you'll see a lot of similarities between um, these people. And I'm sure there's some of you out there that have maybe dealt with this as well. So I guess before... Uh, we begin talking about your experience making this show. First, I just want to give a big trigger warning for uh, this episode. We are discussing child abuse in this episode, uh, throughout this episode, including the mention of a child's death. And with that trigger warning out of the way... Uh, for everyone who's not familiar with these terms, I guess let's just start off with uh, what a factitious disorder is, and then what Munchausen syndrome is, and then what Munchausen by proxy is, so we can get everyone up to speed. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for all the kind words about the show, Brendan. Um, yes, so factitious disorders, that is the umbrella term for three different things. And so I'll kind of run those down real quick because they're 
all very relevant to the show and to the to the experiences that we're talking about. And there's a lot of crossover. So um, there is there is Munchausen syndrome, which is known the clinical term as factitious disorder, and that is when someone exaggerates, induces, or invents illnesses in themselves for the purposes of attention and sympathy. Um, There is Munchausen by proxy or factitious disorder imposed on another. And that is when someone, usually the parent of a small child, um, but it can be the caregiver of an older adult or anyone who's in that role, um, exaggerates, induces, or invents illnesses in another person for that same intrinsic emotional payoff of getting sympathy and attention. Um, And then there's what's called malingering. And I like to throw that one in the mix because there's a lot of confusion about motivation when people are doing this. And there is some crossover in most cases I've seen with malingering, but malingering is actually a separate thing. So malingering is when people do these same behaviors, but for a tangible reward. So either to get out of work or military service or to get money. So pure financial fraud. Um, So there is often cases of financial fraud that are kind of wrapped up in these. So, you know, you'll see a lot of cases where parents, you know, fraudulently get, um, you know, fundraise on something like GoFundMe for their child's supposed dancer that they turn out not to have, or they'll do that for themselves. Um, Or they will, you know, get a -a make-a-wish trip um, for a child that's not actually sick or that kind of thing. So obviously that is, that's also malingering behavior. But when you see this sort of larger pattern of they're doing it over a long period of time and most of the rewards are not tangible, then that's considered um, that's considered factitious disorder imposed on another. So the the motivations are, are somewhat different. There is some some crossover in the behaviors, but if you saw someone just doing it as a financial scam, um, then that's considered malingering. So, you know, when you listen to the first two episodes of the show. The thing that strikes me the most and I think what attaches someone to, to your, your podcast, what attached me is you. And I say that in the sense of we're listening to someone who's had an experience, you, your experience of this in your life, alleged, um, for legal reasons. And you are connecting with this family and that is uh, Hope's family, Hopi Barra's family. And there's this just genuine connecting that is going on. I can feel your brain buzzing and zapping towards them and they're doing the same back to you in the sense of things are making sense you know, talking to someone else that has gone through these things, but yours was so similar. And it was one of those things where like, I got goosebumps uh, listening to you ask questions because you can hear it in your voice. You can hear like, I don't know what the word is. It's not a shock. It's just of... um you know, understand, like it's just this understanding kind of like, you know, it's being there. You've understood it before in some sort of way, but there's this connectedness with this specific family that is just undeniable that made your life 
seem real um, and that everything that you went through real. And a lot of people can hear different people's stories, but for you, this family was the family that seemed like it did it for you. So when you're going through that process of kind of knowing what someone is going through or knowing what you've been through and now having it translated by someone else, I guess, what's your process, I guess, of unraveling or unpacking things maybe for a second time? Yeah, that's, first of all, a really good description of what that experience felt like. You know, we, the show was a long time in the making. It took us, you know, better part of two years to make the show. And I still keep in touch with the Putcher family. I'm actually having, I'm, I have to take a short trip to Fort Worth this week. So I'm actually having dinner with Nick Butcher and his fiance, you know, tomorrow night. So we still, I still keep in touch with actually most of the people from the show. Um, and I think part of it was, you know, that very intense bond of having been very isolated with what feels like a very strange story and then being able to talk to someone else where the story has all of these parallels and really never having been able to talk to anybody else who understands what that feels like to find out that, you know, that a big part of your life has not been what you thought it was and that your relationship with a person, you know, that you considered very dear to you, that you really loved. And that, especially I think in the case of talking to Hope's siblings, having this really strange experience of feeling like we knew one person for a long time. And then at some point that person was gone and trying to pinpoint sort of moment that everything changed or the moment that they disappeared. And, and I think there are these very big moments that we all had, you know, obviously one of the biggest parallels between my personal story and the story of, you know, Hope Yabara's family was this, these, these, what we eventually have only been able to surmise were completely fake pregnancies with twin girls that they lost really late in the game and had these, you know, really intense sort of memorializing of them and describing those losses, you know, to us and really, you know, that feeling very real to us. Like we were thinking that we had, you know, nieces on the way. And, you know, in Robin's case, she named one of her children after the one of her real children um, after, after those lost nieces and, and sort of, you know, that's a very strange and very specific thing to go through. And so being able to talk to someone and, and it makes you feel, I mean, I, I think that the thing that, that we all shared talking to other people, whether it was the siblings, um, you know, the, the Hope's father or some of these other dads that have been through situations with their, with their spouses or their former spouses, um, you know, it makes you feel crazy. I think people really, really, people really use the term gaslighting in a little bit of a too colloquial sense for my taste these days. I feel like every third TikTok I see is, and maybe that's just because I spend too much time on TikTok, but like there's, you know, people will say gaslighting sometimes when I'm like, I think that you just mean that person is disagreeing with you, but, um, but you know, it, it does, it does feel like gaslighting because it, it, the person in question is telling you such a deep, intricate lie that it really makes you, and, and if you have bought into it at any point, it makes you question your experience so profoundly and just think like, how did I, that person looked pregnant, you know, in my case, like I thought, 
I felt a baby kick. Like, am I losing my mind? And so I think to be able to talk through that with someone was super helpful. And I think, you know, just really, um, there's a very particular sort of grief that goes along with losing a person, which I think probably a lot of your listeners will relate to if they grew up with someone who, you know, is a narcissist. I should say also that, you know, for listeners, like there is a very, very high comorbidity between Munchausen by proxy and Munchausen um, and cluster B personality disorders like narcissistic personality disorder, like borderline. So there's a lot of crossover there. And I think that that shows up when I'm talking to people who had, you know, who have a family member that has one of those other disorders, like the, some of the experiences are are very distinct, but some of the experiences are really similar. And so I think that feeling of just of, of losing someone that you loved, but that person's still out there and what you lost is who you thought they were and your relationship with them. Um, you know, that was, it, it was, it was really in, intensely cathartic. And I think, um, you know, the very first interview that I did for this podcast, the pers- first person that we drove out to go see and, and sat down with was, was Robin Butcher, who is Hope Ybarra's little sister. And I think we talked to each other for something like three hours. And I had never really done an interview like that. You know, I, I was new to podcasting with this show. Um, and when I drove home from that, I remember thinking, I don't know if I can do this. It was really beautiful to meet Robin. It was really cathartic, but it was overwhelming. And I just thought, you know, is this process going to just drag up so much for me that that it's going to be too much? And and then I kind of woke up the next day and I, I sort of felt, you know, like something had lifted off of me. And so I, that was when I was like, okay, I think this is the right thing to pursue this. And I don't think this is going to sort of do further damage to my psyche. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely, it was my favorite part of the podcast and the most positive part of the podcast was just meeting all of these people who were really nice, good people who'd gone through these situations, who, you know, didn't do anything wrong and hadn't had anyone else to share their experience with either. And yeah, so that was something really beautiful that that came out of it. So a lot of things that you mentioned there are things that are mentioned in our world. And when it comes to, you know, meeting someone or getting into a relationship with someone who you think that they are this specific person, they have presented themselves in X way, the way that they want you to see them only for them to eventually change into the person they actually are in a very Dr. Jekyll and, and, and Mr. Hyde kind of way. And there's all these lies that we're told. And people are holding on to a lot of the time the person that they originally met. And there are these two distinct people and there is... The, the cognitive dissonance of like, well, they're this person, but they're this person. And you're fighting to like hold on to that first one because you love that person. And you're trying to figure out what is real, especially in the aftermath, what is real and what isn't real. And in, in you said gaslighting in 
a lot of times there's the words or the, the term we use, which is like the kernels of truth, where you're being gaslit with like the kernels of truth that are in there that really confuse you. But the kernels of truth in your world would be, okay, there are all of these lies, but then there are these actual true things that happened that were these true medical things maybe here or there which then provide a real big problem because everything is then really tangled and hard to pull your, like, like it's really difficult to figure out what is real and that conundrum that is going on in your head of what is real and what is not real. So with speaking with everyone, and I guess within your own experience, how do you reconcile that, um, what is real, what is not real, in the sense of my experience was I had a good time. We had a, you know, I this moment in my life was wonderful. And, and I guess thinking about that in a positive way because that person, or at least for me, you know, I want to believe that I love that moment. And then as far as blame goes, um, do you blame your siblings or your family members for what is going on? Because is this something they chose to do? Is this a mental illness? What is a mental illness? So where does blame lie? Or, you know, and then the biggest thing here is like the creation of this, specifically Munchausen by proxy. Difficult to detect how that was really created, I would say. So I know I asked, I, I kind of threw a lot of stuff at you there. So uh, within the spaghetti that I threw, uh, which strand do you want to kind of go at? No, first? I can. I, I, that's really good spaghetti. So I will just kind of go strand by strand if I can. I really like what you said there about mixing in the kernels of truth, because that is something that actually Dr. Mark Feldman, who's a good friend and who was a guest on, on my show. And I've done a lot of work in talking with him. Um, you know, he's talked about with Pseudologica Fantastica, which is the clinical name for, um, for pathological lying, which I just, I love that term so much. Um, but uh, but yeah, with that, that the most effective liars are people that mix in some truth with it, right? Because then it doesn't sound just outwardly delusional. It sort of throws the person off because you find out one piece of it is true. And one way that this really presents with Munchausen by proxy cases just across the board is that you often will see some legitimate health issue and there can be the misconception that if you discover any legitimate health issue in a child, that that means abuse has not taken place. That's not the case at all. It doesn't mean that that parent didn't exaggerate, make it worse, cause that thing. You know, sometimes that can be hard to get to the bottom of what's been induced and what hasn't. Um, I mean, these cases are so complex and so thorny. Really, that can't be overstated. But, you know, something that I've seen in almost every case where it's a mother and child is that the baby is born premature. So any baby that's born really premature is going to have some legitimate issues, right? So that presents as, okay, well, this, this child is so sick because they were born premature. Now, the thing is that 
there have been perpetrators who have, you know, for instance, Mark Feldman talked to a couple for his book that talked about how they caused those premature pregnancy, premature births to happen. Um, and so that could be a situation where it's induced and then there are legitimate issues. So that's very thorny, but there is often, you know, something they can point to or some positive test or something that, you know, the perpetrator in a case can point to where they say, nope, see, my child is really sick and all these things you're accusing me of are not real. Um, so that is where it gets very, very thorny. And I think that's why it makes everyone, everyone who's involved in any level in these cases feel a little bit nuts. Um, so the second thing, you know, that you were talking about is sort of like, how do you reconcile that you had these good experiences with this person? And then, um, you know, and then they turned out to sort of once the, once their true colors came out or once their sort of disorder evolved or once their behavior sort of got, you know, got more extreme that, that you feel like you really lost the person or this different person. And I think that was, that was something actually that the process of writing my novel, which was inspired um, by some parts of my family story and also um, doing this podcast really helped me with is that I feel like I have really good memories of my sister growing up and even into like our teenage years and young adulthood. Um, you know, I, I still loved her. I still had a lot of good memories. I thought, how is this person that I have this happy childhood? You know, how did we end up here where, you know, we've now been estranged for, I think, 12 years and, and really like her behavior at the end of our relationship and since then is not that of someone that I can reconcile as, as the person I grew up with. And, and I think that's a really distressing experience. I think what meeting, especially meeting Hope's siblings, because Hope's siblings and her family, like they had all of these great memories of her. They, you know, she was this like vibrant, very beloved person in her community, in her family. And, you know, they had all these like, just like fun times, memories that you have of a sibling and hearing them talk about those and kind of getting to talk about like the parts of our sisters that we loved and that we remember really fondly was also really cathartic because just as you said, you know, I've kind of come to a place where I just think like, oh, I'm going to get emotional, but, um, you know, I always think of like my sister's wedding is really my last really good memory of her. We, you know, her best friend was there because we were both in her wedding party. We like stayed up at the hotel bar the night before, like singing songs. We went through old photo albums. Her wedding was a really joyous occasion. And so for me, in my mind, I sort of think of that as the last time I saw her. Like that's the last time I saw the person that I, that I knew. And some of these things, you know, like the, the, the pregnancy stuff had already happened by that point. So certainly like we were on our way, but like... I think I've kind of allowed myself to just have some of those memories back and, and think like, doesn't mean that I never had a good experience with her. I don't know if I feel like she ever felt that bond with me, but my, my life is still real. You know, I think it's allowed me to kind of compartmentalize where I can say like, yeah, I had a happy child with this hood with this person and then now that person is gone and there's this other person. And for me, that's been helpful. I think that can also make you feel a little, that's, that's a hard thing to wrap your head around. But I think for me, I've been able to sort of have a little more peace. I don't feel as sad when I see like an old family photo or something like that. 
So the other thing that you had asked about is where do we factor in the question of mental illness and blame? And actually, that was one of my biggest questions about this topic going into recording the podcast. And I feel like I came away with some pretty satisfactory answers. Well, I will say they were intellectually satisfying. I don't think emotionally they're very satisfying. Um, So with factitious disorder imposed on another, Munchausen by proxy, it's the official factitious disorder imposed on another is the official thing that's in the DSM, right? So that's the disorder that is that is applied to this behavior. I want to say a couple of things about it. Yes, it is a mental illness and medical child abuse does not happen in the absence of this, um, of this disorder. So um, people do over-medicalize their children for other reasons because they're an anxious parent, because they're having actual delusions, because they're having like sort of hypochondria, like that kind of thing, that is completely distinct from people who are doing it on purpose. So factitious disorder imposed on another is characterized by intentional deception. So that's a really important thing for people to understand. And even though this behavior is attributed to a disorder, it's not something that makes people I mean, crazy is not a helpful word, but it doesn't make people criminally not culpable. So it's not a situation where you're having like a psychotic break or something like that. It's deliberate, it's knowing, and people who have it understand right from wrong. So I think that I am interested in the mental illness part of it, but I think that all, and I, I, I don't think that we should not try to understand or have empathy for people who perpetrate this. However, I think obviously the safety of children always has to be paramount. So you never want to try and treat a perpetrator at the expense of protecting that child. So I think that's really, really important. This is not a situation where you just go, all right, send this mom to therapy and we can keep the kids in the house and et cetera. It's not that kind of situation. This is the deadliest form of child abuse. Um, It's very, very dangerous. So that's very important that we just, you know, it is a crime. We see it as a crime um, and we have to take care of the kids first. But I think, you know, it, it, the question of whether it's treatable is something we get into in the show. I think that I've heard, you know, some stories of success. I think it's a very, it's very, very, very rare that perpetrators acknowledge the behavior, even if they've gone to prison, um, even if they are, you know, there's like um, Lacey Spears is one of the more infamous perpetrators. Her story was in the news quite a bit. She actually killed her son and she sitting in, even as she was in jail for it, she still denied doing it. So it's very rare that people are accountable, even if they're being held criminally accountable. Um, and so you have to take full accountability to, to get any kind of treatment, just like any other, you know, disorder or, um, and so I think it's very unlikely that most perpetrators would be treatable, but, um, but I think in terms of blame, I think especially when you're talking about Munchausen by proxy, yeah, there are real victims and those victims suffer such severe consequences that yeah, I think blame is in order. So do researchers know if Munchausen by proxy was created in childhood or was this even created at all? There's not a lot known about the why. Like why someone develops this, um, this disorder. And, you know, I think it's always, 
somewhat tempting, I think, to try and go find some childhood event that spurred that. And certainly in some cases, I've heard of, you know, with some perpetrators where they came from a really abusive family and, you know, et cetera. But, and I think obviously people are always more likely to become abusive if they've been raised in an abusive family themselves. But certainly, you know, um, there are many, there are just as many cases I've I've heard about where there is no reported history or even suspicion of abuse in that family where that was like a really nice, normal family. I mean, that was the really, you know, edifying thing I think about meeting Hope's family is these were clearly, there had never been any suspicion of abuse raised. Um, You know, nobody, nobody, including Hope herself, had ever pointed back to some sort of bad thing that had happened to her growing up. Um, and this was clearly like a loving, supportive family. This was clearly a person. I mean, you know, her family raised a hundred thousand dollars for her alleged cancer. Um, you know, this was clearly a person who had a very strong support system, um, and didn't have these other sort of outward markers of, you know, of being, being a troubled person, um, you know, besides this behavior, obviously this behavior is very extreme and ends up being all consuming, but there just isn't a lot known about that. Is it like, um, is it an impulsivity? Yes. Impulsivity is definitely attached to that. And so that is, um, again, with some of those, like I was talking about the comorbidity with the, the other personality disorders and the other things that we see, you know, I talked to Mark Feldman about this in the podcast of like, we see these other sort of behaviors that started showing up in a lot of other cases where I was like, okay, is this, this is sort of, is this part of the profile? So the other things that we saw a lot of were um, financial fraud and um, infidelity. So I was, I asked Mark Feldman, I was like, does that, does that fit with sort of a, and he said, yes, you know, that's sort of the, um, it is like an impulsive behavior and a sort of like lack of control. So that's kind of where that fits into the picture. Yeah. I've known when it comes to like addiction, you know, it, it seems very much like here is, I'm going to do this. I'm going now to get my fix. Yes. And that's why you also see that escalation of behavior over time where, and it is like, from what they know about the brain science of it, it is an addictive behavior. So it's, it's, you have to do more of it. And it's a very impulsive, like thing that that person feels that they need to do to get their emotional needs met. So one of the things I really found interesting is that you have partners, some who have come to terms with what they were dealing with. And then you have the ones who don't want to talk to you and they don't want to believe what is actually going on. So did you, when you think about them, I guess what is kind of going on with, with with that type of partner where they're still in this world where they are protecting the abuser Yeah. I mean, I will tell you, I got a really interesting message from a survivor after our two episodes with the dads aired. And, you know, he mentioned to me, he said, you know, I feel like these were great interviews, but not all dads step up in this way. This is, you know, and that was a very good point. Obviously the dads that are going to talk to me for this podcast are going to be the dads who, you know, clued in and did the right thing and, 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 recognize the evidence being put before them. But um, obviously that is not all dads. And in fact, like there are, I would say I've heard just as many cases um, 
you know, where the, the non-offending spouse, um, which I say, I say moms and dads because 96% of perpetrators that are known about are moms of young children. Um, and so, you know, the dads in these cases frequently will stand by the, the mom. And I've seen many cases where it does not matter what evidence is put before that person, they refuse to believe. And that's not just dads, that's also like other family members, like the parents of the perpetrator or, you know, siblings or close friends of the perpetrator, just people who are really enmeshed with that person. Um, and I think that that's, there's a, there's a few things going on there. I think number one, it is impossible to overstate how manipulative perpetrators can be. Some of them are, you know, there's there, there's a range just like anything else. Not every, you know, perpetrator is a mastermind, but certainly when you're talking about someone like Hope Ybarra, she was smart enough to convince people to hire her as a lead chemist that she had a PhD she didn't have. I mean, she's incredibly smart. So it's like there is, you know, and just this, this sort of that they have an answer for everything, right? Every time they're questioned, there's an answer. And if they're a really smart person, then they can be really convincing. They're doing a very long con. Yes. So yeah, it is. I mean, it is. It is essentially a long con. It's yes. a long con. So like they're putting in the work. They've been observing for a long time before they actually begin. For them, the downfall will always be. Eventually, people will catch on that like this can't happen, or someone is going to. Uh, pass away and people are going to eventually ask questions. I will say this for sort of spouses and other, other people. I understand not being able to wrap your head around it right away. It is really hard. It is not something anybody wants to believe that could be happening in their own family. Certainly for people who are spouses, you do not want to believe that you chose that person and that you have been, you know, unknowingly letting that person abuse your child. I mean, that's a horrible, horrible reckoning to have to have. So I understand, you know, not right away, first conversation, you know, I understand defending that person for, for a little while. Um, I think just emotionally, and I think, you know, I will say by and large, I think most of us overestimate how logical we're going to be about things. <laughs> I think, you know, that's not really how human beings make decisions. And like belief is is stronger oftentimes than facts that we're being presented with to a point. And I think there's sort of a threshold where I find the behavior forgivable. However, once you've seen these cases where someone is being presented with very hard evidence, with videotape, with doctor's affidavits with multiple accusations and investigations over many years with a whole bunch of people saying like, no, look, here's the evidence right in front of your face. When people start ignoring that and the way that they do it, I mean, it's sort of extraordinary. There's, you know, conversations that I've, you know, listened in on or like, you know, talk to other, other people about with, with sort of collateral interviews with family members, you know, you, it basically becomes conspiracy thinking where they say, well, no, I think this doctor, I think this, this doctor is colluding with CPS. I think this detective is crooked. And I think that this is her former friends trying to get revenge. And it's like, if you get in that thing where like everyone is against you and for what reason, 
well, for what reason would a doctor cook up a false accusation? For what reason would they be, you know, nobody has anything to gain out of accusing someone of child abuse in most cases, you know, sometimes in custody cases, but like that's kind of a whole other like red herring. But, you know, when you get into that sort of everything has to be a coincidence and everybody has to be out to get us for any of this to make sense, then I I find that less forgivable. And for the people that, you know, at some point, I think everyone who is in that person's life faces a choice of you do the hard thing and recognize what's happening or you are an enabler and you are enabling a child to be tortured. And that to me, especially if you're a person that, you know, you're, you're thinking like, okay, we're assuming that the, the, um, that the perpetrator has a disorder that's causing this behavior, right? I don't believe that makes them not culpable for their actions, but they do have a disorder. The people around them are supposedly sane and functioning normally. So that's even sort of less forgivable that they would, they would support that behavior if they are being confronted with really hard evidence. Um, and so I think, but then I think the problem also is the longer it goes on, the more that person's going to have to double down because now if they look at the truth, they're going to have to recognize that they've been enabling it for a really long time. So I think people just get more and more and more entrenched in their, in their positions. And then I think on top of that, you know, we talked to, um, we talked to in the podcast, Doug Welch, who is a dad who had a case go very badly. And basically, you know, his, his ex-wife was indicted by a grand jury and then there was a change in leadership and the case got dropped and all that stuff happens in the criminal justice system, unfortunately, all the time. So then you also are facing the thing where for that person's supporters, if the state made a bad call, if the person gets away with it, that can sort of reinforce their position of, well, see, she was innocent all along. Did she get charged? No, she didn't. Or did she get convicted? No, she didn't. So it's, you know, it's really a, it's really a sort of complex phenomenon, but I, I think I can sympathize with it in the beginning, but I think that I again, I really feel like people have to put the children first and it's about putting the children first and, and recognizing what's happening. So when it comes to grief and your process of grieving, uh, I guess, where did you begin? And I guess, where do you have to, um, what did you kind of have to wade through as far as the grief aspect of things go and um, moving on? Yeah. So, I mean, I, and I want to reiterate, and, you know, you said this at the top, but I want to reiterate, you know, my sister has not been charged with a crime. Um, The, she has been investigated twice. The first investigation happened about 12 years ago. That was a CPS investigation only. The state did not file for dependency. So when the state files for dependency, that's when they file to take have someone's children taken away. Um, so that did not happen in that first investigation. There was another investigation um, a few years ago where the state did file for dependency. Um, a family court judge dismissed that. There was a two-year-long criminal investigation that did not end in them filing charges. So that is sort of the, that is sort of my disclaimer just to be very forthright about sort of what has happened in the, in the, in the legal, is on the legal side that, that I know about. Um, And I have not been in touch with her for, for 12 years. So my family's involvement in the first investigation went like this. Um, You know, she had had some of these strange things in her own history that I talked about on the podcast, like shaving her head, like the 
pregnancy that that we ultimately determined was likely fake. Um, and so, you know, we had some major concerns when um, she had a child born early that that was having a lot of health problems. Um, my mother went to our family doctor at the time and asked her advice. Um, she was the one who gave her that term, Munchausen by proxy, and said, you know, like, this is something to be aware of. Um, my mom ended up going and having co a conversation with one of the doctors who was treating my nephew, um, and they were the ones who reported it to CPS. So that was kind of how that whole thing un unfolded. And I, I tell that story because, A, for clarity, and B, um, because I will say that I think my gr grieving process started the first time I heard those words because I thought I had a very strong gut feeling that something was wrong and I thought I can't ignore it and I thought my sister will never forgive us and this is the end of our family as we know it. I just, and we tried, I mean, we tried, we tried to keep in touch. She was the one who cut us out of her life. It was not the other way around. You know, my parents really initially, I mean, we didn't, and again, this was sort of what part of the emphasis of this project was. We were so alone with this. We didn't know what to do. We didn't, what do you have, what do you do if you have these suspicions? We got some advice from our family doctor, but once we were in it, you know, they, they removed my nephew. We did not know that was going to happen. We got that call and then CPS told them that, my mom had reported suspicions to the doctor. So we were like enemy number one right away. And then, you know, initially we stayed in contact with, with her and her husband. Um, and actually my, my parents paid their initial attorney's fees because we were so afraid of like what was going to happen, just being in this thing of like, oh my God, is he going to end up in foster care? And, you know, and so we were really, you know, initially this was not a realistic <laughs> This was not a realistic want, but I think there was this thing of like, we can just sort this out and, and we'll get her some help and we'll figure this all out as a family. And that's not, not realistic. And that's not how things played out. But, um, you know, we didn't want to lose that relationship with her, but I think I knew enough about how she reacted to things to know that like, if we say that we think there is something wrong here, like that's going to be it for our relationship. And I was right. And I think, you know, I started grieving at that moment when, after I had my last, what I think may be the last conversation I ever had with her in my life, where I just tried to sort of say, you know, listen, like we, you have this history, like the pregnancy and, you know, and she said, she said, why did, I don't know why you're bringing that up now. Um, you know, and just, and said, you know what, we've never been that close. And, and I, I just, you just never were sort of, you know, and, and I didn't feel that way. Um, but I kind of, I think I knew, I was, I think I knew that I either have to have to take her word for it and ignore everything that I am seeing and feeling, or that's it, I'm dead to her. And I mean, that's, that's what happened. Um, as far as where I'm at with it now, I certainly think these projects have have helped me heal. Um, I will say I wouldn't have done it for that reason only. I think I really, it took me a really, really long time to where I felt like I saw a path to be helpful to other people um, and to sort of 
be really assured in my own motivations um, that it was about, you know, about being able to connect with other people, being able to spread good information. Certainly after I joined this committee that's part of APSAC and met all these people like Detective Weber and Mark Feldman and Mary Sanders. And I thought, you know, this me as a storyteller, you know, having this background as a novelist and then getting into podcasting, like this is a way that I can help sort of get this information out. Um, So yeah, I mean, it it took me a really long time. And I think that the grief is kind of always with you. I mean, I certainly felt... um, you know, I certainly felt one of the things that happens when you lose someone from your life that is, I think, especially in your immediate family is that you, that grief, that absence just sort of echoes through the rest of your life. You know, I never, when I was younger, would never have envisioned um, getting married without her there. I, you know, always, always thought, you know, she, she used to work as a nurse in an OBGYN clinic. And so I always thought like, oh, I would, I, she would be my first person I would call when I found out I was pregnant. And, you know, she wasn't there for any of those things because we've been estranged for a really long time. And um, so I think like every time there's kind of a life milestone, I feel that again. And, and I think that grief has really changed shape. Um, I think that grief has changed from, I wish that person was still here with me to, I miss the memory of that person and I'm grieving what I thought my life was going to be. Yeah, because when we talk sometimes to uh, children of uh, abusers that didn't have these relationships that they wanted with their parent, they're grieving someone that's still alive once they've gone no contact with them. And that was one form of grief. But when the parent eventually dies, there's this other form of grief that happens because they are, that is the point where there is no chance of reconciliation. Like it's official that it's not there and it provides, well, it doesn't provide, it's this other form of grief because deep down it's always there and then that they want that Um, because there is no closure in, in in, in this way and them dying is just the official stamp that it will, it, it won't happen. And just, you know, trying to live your best life, you know, having someone who's still out there is so difficult because you want it so much and there's so much love there. It's just hard to do. And everyone's grieving process is, is different. Um, so I'm sorry, you know, that it's a difficult thing that you're going through, your whole family goes through, and everyone um, is going through in our world and in your world. So a thing that we haven't touched on, and I think you should go listen to Andrea's show, is the ins and outs of, you know, how the system is worked. Uh, there's so much about that. We're not going to get into uh, that part. Uh, of everything because there's just so much when it comes to the medical system, doctors, 
lawsuits possibly against doctors. Um, yeah, and, and it's the tip of the iceberg what we yeah, covered in season it, one on it, it. That's why there's more seasons to yeah, be. Yeah, so there's more <laughs> seasons. Know, yeah. to, so there's more seasons to come. So, what is coming uh, down the pipeline when you're going to be doing season two? Uh, because right now everyone should binge season one, uh, so they're ready for season two. Uh, so I guess start off there. And, t- and what else uh, do you have going on? Do you have other books that might be coming out? I do. So I have, I have a lot, I think maybe even a little too much. Um, I have a six month old baby also. So my life is to end a four year old. So my life is very busy, but um, yes, in terms of the podcast. So we, we do have a season two coming and I think we are actually going to make season three while we're making season two, because this is a, you know, sort of limited series format. So, um, and there's just two things I'm really excited about. So um, for season two, we actually have quite a bit of that in the can already and are hoping to release that in spring of 2023. Um, That is, we are going to be covering a a second case. So there's going to be some recurring characters such as Detective Mike. So this is another Detective Mike um, case and it is a totally different kind of perpetrator than Hope Ybarra. So we were talking a little bit about how, you know, some of these perpetrators are really like master manipulators. And this second perpetrator that we're talking about was absolutely not. Like everyone was on to her. I could not find people that sort of spoke in her defense. It was a totally different kind of thing. And yet I think what her case illustrates is how inept the system is and just like how bad it is at recognizing this form of abuse and actually chillingly how easy it is to commit this abuse um, in our modern world where everyone has access to WebMD. Um, So I think that will be a really interesting case. There's lots of interesting twists and turns. It's another really wonderful family that we're talking to. Um, and I won't, I won't give too much away, but so we're going to be really focusing on, um, on systems in season two. And I, so we've got another great, um, great sort of, you know, case at the, at the core of it that I think will really be interesting to people And this one, you know, involves trial. And so, um, so I think that's going to be great. And then for season three, um, you know, I really would like to, in both season two and three, really kind of shift the story to adult survivors and what survivors go through. Um, again, that's a, that's a population of people that is very under-recognized um, and very, um, very isolated. And so, you know, I am doing some work with survivors through my 501c3. I have a wonderful person called Joe there that helps me with that. And I think we are going to be getting into their story for season three and kind of really doing a deep dive on, on that story, on what healing looks like on what specifically survivors deal with because they have some crossover with other people who are dealing with, you know, abuse and, and PTSD and those kind of things, but then they have some really specific stuff around, you know, medical history and sort of not understanding their own life story. So it's really, it's really fascinating stuff. I'm really looking forward to digging into those. So, so definitely at least two more seasons of the podcast. And then, um, yes, I have other things going on. I'm also a novelist, still working as a novelist. So I have a new book coming out um, on March 7th from Zibby Books called Women Are the Fiercest Creatures. It's the story of a manipulative tech CEO whose past come back, comes back to haunt him just as he is going to take his company public. So that is kind of a a fun thing that I can work on that is not <laughs> quite as heavy as as all of this other stuff. Um, and I also actually am um, 
I am writing a true crime book with um, Detective Mike that is going to be, we are going to cover three cases and that is going to come out from St. Martin's in 2024. So lots more to come. So Andrea Dunlop, you can be found at andreadunlop.net. The yes. podcast Nobody Should Believe Me can be found at nobodyshouldbelieveme.com. And anywhere anywhere podcasts are listened to. So Apple Podcasts, et cetera. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Castbox. What else do you listen to? Player FM, player.fm. I don't know. You've exhausted my knowledge of podcatchers there. I can go on forever. If they want to sponsor the show, you know, we're we're here. So I really want to thank you for for being here. Just giving your knowledge, your experience, your personal experience, you know, and relating what you're going through is just helpful to everyone. So a really big thank you for for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. This is really, this is like one of my favorite conversations that I've had around this. So I really appreciate you. Well, thank you. And everyone, I think you should listen to this podcast. I love this podcast. You know, I, I, from the, as you could hear, you know, when I heard you connect with the other people, I was hooked. And it's, you know, you can listen to, to, to shows that give a lot of different information or you can listen to a true crime podcast, you know, people that are talking. But when you connect with another person or you hear another person connect with someone, you connect to that. And there's just something about you and your show and every everyone that you were speaking to where that happens and it happens right away it was instantaneous and i can't say enough uh, about uh your show and it's on something that no one really talks about and it should be known because it's happening it's happening behind closed doors but it's also happening right in front of your face and you'll learn a lot about this uh, and it could be happening in your life. And if anyone is listening that uh, this is happening to or this happened to reach out to me, you, reach out to you, too. Yeah. And we actually so Munchausen support is the um, resource and support site that I created with uh, Dr. Mark Feldman. And that actually we answer emails there. And so you can get in touch with us there and we will get in touch with our circle of experts to get some help and we have resources for survivors. If that's you, we have resources for people who are in the midst of a case, whatever you've got going on. Um, we are there for you. So yes, please get in touch. So Andrea, I just really want to thank you for being a guest on our show today. And if you want to be a guest on our survivor story episodes, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page. Please read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or just fill out our guest form page and press the submit button. And please do read all of the instructions first before you do that and send it in the form that we ask for. Also at our website, we have our very own safe support group. So at the top of the page at NarcissistApocalypse.com, there's a button that says support group. Click on that button and it takes you to our very own safe social network. There you will find that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday evenings. We have forum boards for you to post on and for fellow survivors to validate your experience and to just help you along the way and give you support. We have ad-free episodes and we have episodes that never made it to air. So please do join our podcast 
support group today. And if you want even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org, at domesticshelters.org. They have articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're going through. They have every phone number, website address, email address for uh, every shelter, no matter how big or small your town is. So please do go visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. It is a great free resource. And that is it for our show today. So for myself and Andrea Dunlop, We hope you have a good night.